Hello and welcome to African Jeopardy. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. Today we're going to be discussing the untold story of African abolitionists with Mr. Michael Odigie. Michael is a research fellow working on the AFRAB project. Well, he should be able to tell us what the abbreviation means. Um, African ab abolitionism, the rise and transformations of anti-slavery in Africa. AFRAB studies the history of Africa's, Africans' continuation to the abolition of um, domestic slavery in Africa. So thank you so much, Michael, um, for being our guest. And Tell us, I, I guess that the first place to start would be for you to tell us the meaning of AFRAB first, and then you can tell us about the whole stories of, or the untold story of African abolitionists. Okay, thank you very much, um, Ife, um, for that very um, generous introduction. So AFRAB, AFRA for short, is just an acronym for African abolitionism the rise and transformation of anti-slavery in Africa. Mm. So this is a project um, led by Professor Benedetta Rosi at UCL. So it is currently being conducted at UCL. It is actually an EU funded project. Um, it, it's an attempt to study the ideas and the networks of African abolition or if you like African anti-slavery movement in Africa. Um, the current literature on the fight against slavery is very Eurocentric. So it is uh -huh. focused on the ideas and the activities of Euro Europeans, whether it's European NGOs yeah. or European anti-slavery activists or even European missionaries, as the case may be. Uh -huh. There's almost no space for Africans fighting domestic slavery. So, you know, anti-slavery from the African perspective. So this, in my understanding, is the first attempt to study African anti-slavery movements and ideas and networks in Africa. So it is, it is, it is, it is a very big project. So, um, so it, it has different regions. So I'm in charge of the the Anglo-West African region, which we define as Nigeria, Ghana, and Sierra Leone. So there's the East Africa region led by somebody else. There's the Franco-West African region and so on. So that does it. Okay, well, thank you so much for um, explaining what the acronym means. And I think I can just go forward to then ask you, Tell us, I mean, is there an example of one of the stories you'd like to share with us? What does it look like based on the research you've been doing so far? What are those un untold stories that you'd like to share with us? There are so many untold stories. So I think perhaps I should just I should just um, tell the story of James Hutin Brew, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is the basis of, of, of uh, a publication that just came out. Um, in Good Coast, in Good Coast is the you know the nineteenth century name for Ghana. Yeah. Um, so James Hutton Brew, as it happens, um, he was um, a lawyer, one of the first lawyers in 
in Kutku's den. He was deeply involved in local politics. He was um, one of the pioneers of Fanti, Fanti Confederacy. Um, so he was born July 13th, 1844. Um, so his grandfather actually, um, Samoy Kento Brew, was actually a notorious slave trader. So Samoy's grandfather too, Richard Brew, was also a known slave trader. I, I think he was even one of the biggest slave traders in, in Good Coast. Yeah. But by the time you get to the, the, to the generation of James Hutton Brew, um, slave, transatlantic slavery had already been abolished. Okay. So the, this is the sort of mid, mid 19th century. You have these local um, African intellectuals springing up um, so Fanti Confederacy was one of, um, was an attempt by Fanti. Fanti is, a, is an ethnic group in Ghana to, to, to come together and form um, um, sort of self, so they were trying to negotiate self-government with, with the British. So he was one of the people, in, people at the forefront of that. He was the, he was the under secretary of the of the Executive Council of the Fanti Confederacy. Yeah. I, I'm not sure we have enough time to go into that. It's into a very the details, yeah, but just, yeah. I guess, give us an so idea. Yeah, so the Fanti Confederacy was different Fanti kings coming together to form their own government. So they, they collaborated with educated Africans. So it was, yeah. A, it was a, yeah, so they wanted to form their, their own government. And James Hutton Brew was at the forefront of this. So he wrote the constitution. He handed the constitution over to the administrator in chief of West African settlement. That's the British um, stationed um, officer yeah. who then arrested him, the first British stationed officer, who then arrested him for sediction. Hmm. But, um, you know, I think a few months down the line, he gave it to the to another, another stationed British officer, this time around John Pope Hennessy. The first time it was Salmon. John Pope Hennessy was um, a British colonial official who who is very so he, he has a liking for Africans. So he accepted the document and he sent the document over to London. But the colonial office in London was not um, um, disposed to the idea of of African self government. So this is this is this is how Brew actually made himself known. In good yeah. then. So another reason, another way that he made himself known was through through journalism. So he founded the first print newspaper in the Good Coast, Good Coast Times. He also founded the Western Echo, which later became Good Coast Chronic Chronicle. So in Good Coast Times, um, this first newspaper, the he wrote the editorial in every single edition. So in the editorial, he would write on topical issues, yeah. topical issues of the day. So in 1874, which is the year that Good Coast became a colony, it was a protectorate before, before 1874. So the British decided to abolish domestic slavery. So there's a distinction between transatlantic slavery, Africans exported to, you, to America and domestic slavery. So domestic slavery yeah. is an African, you know, Africans enslaving themselves, does. Um, you can buy and sell slaves. Yeah, but within uh, the country. 
within the country or within the continent. You can buy okay. from one region and sell to another. That's domestic slavery. Yeah. So there's a sort of link between transatlantic and domestic slavery, but we don't have time to get into that. So yeah. the abolition of transatlantic slavery actually led to an increase in domestic slavery because you have this huge number of unsold slaves, which reduce the price of domestic slaves. And then you have, um, um, not just in Good Coast, even in all across West Africa, the price went down and more people took part in it. Yeah. So the British decided in 1874 to abolish domestic slavery in Good Coast. So why they made this decision, they, you had African abolitionists like James U.T. Brew, who had their own ideas of how to go about abolishing domestic slavery. So you there became a sort of tension between so the African educated elites, their ideas for on how to abolish domestic slavery and the British, the British sort of colonial government. So the colonial government wanted to abolish domestic slavery without really abolishing it. This is what I mean by that. Yeah. There's a cost associated to abolishing domestic slavery. For example, what do you do with the the former slaves? Because you know, land is the basis of almost everything in in Africa. Then, and yeah. so you can't just say from now on there's no more domestic slavery. So what do you do with the freed slaves? Mm. So these are questions that James Hutibu grappled with. But the British did not actually want to grapple with these questions. So they wanted to abolish it legally, and then behind the table tell the masters that you know they can go on holding slaves. The reason for this is so that they can get anti-slavery activists in Europe off their back. Ah. They can then say, hey, yeah, they can then say, hey, look, legally we've abolished domestic slavery. Um, you know, but yeah. but on the ground, there's still still um still domestic slavery going on. So this became there became a sort of tension between African educated elites of which James Hutton Brew was, was at, the, at the forefront of that, and the British on how to go about abolishing domestic slavery. So the British, the British um, colonial governor then opted for something called India, the India model. So the India model is called the India model because you know they used it earlier in the century to abolish, they used this particular method to abolish domestic slavery in, in India. So the Indian model is just simply forbidding the holding of slavery legally without providing any um, any any um, without actually administering the law, just creating a law that says you know slavery is now illegal without putting the law into if into um, without doing anything to to implement the law. Why? Local abolitionists like Brew argued for proper abolition. That is, they wanted slavery to actually come to an end. Yeah. So for them, the way to do this would be to um, distribute land. So Brew, in his writing, if you read some of his um his articles, go in 1874, 1875, just you reading through the through his um his newspapers. You can see him arguing that 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 it is better to acquire land and give land to these 
to the former slaves, it is better to do this, to do that. So this yeah, became a tension between Brew and and the British. But the British were so the British the British governor, the way he responded to this was to portray Brew as a slaveholder ah. looking to yeah, which is which is funny. If you read his letters, looking to preserve preserve his position. So this this was sort of the easy way for him to to go about doing that. So Brew got really angry, and even got personal. Um. So no, so. I, okay. Yeah. No, carry on. I, I I do. I have a question, but maybe just finish, and then I'll, I'll answer the question. No, no. You can you can ask you can ask the question. Yeah. Okay. So I I, I wanted to ask whether you know the whole idea of okay the campaign in Europe to abolish slavery whether they indeed or should i say the 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 whole idea of trying to continue slavery domestically was something that was happening at the same time whilst or when they are stopping or putting an end to transatlantic slavery so if these two things were happening at the same time um so if i if i understand your question you're asking if the period the sort of abolition of transatlantic slavery, whether whether that particular period is what we are talking about, what I yeah. am talking about. So whether it was also concurrently, they were stopping transatlantic slavery whilst maintaining domestic slavery. Yes, it, okay. yes. Transatlantic slavery, the argument for transatlantic slavery did not include domestic slavery. Okay. It's purely transatlantic slavery. So after that, Africans, Africans were sort of allowed, slave merchants were allowed to sort of hold and even sell the slave domestically and sort of regionally, mm-hmm. but they could not sort of export the, the slaves. Um, so do, the abolition of domestic slavery, that was a whole different issue. Yeah. So if you, if you, yeah, so the British, for example, abolished transatlantic slavery in 1807. Then they abolished slavery in their own colony in the 1830s so that's a different form of slavery so by then gold coast was not a colony so none there was no sort of they defined as colony in the whole of west africa so they allowed slavery to continue in west africa even in in um even in regions where you have british sort of settlement um domestic slavery continued just as before um so, you know until until say the 1870s um yeah. so yeah okay. yeah i don't know if that um, answers your question yeah no it does answer but also then in your response you sort of said um you said africans or should i say you said merchants and then said sellers and this brings me yeah. to the next question right because in trying to tell us about this guy and the amazing thing that he's done you talked about how his dad was one of the sellers, right? So I wanted to ask whether there is validity around this whole discussion. You know, when we talk about slavery and how bad it was and the role that the British especially played in sustaining it, people say, oh, but it was the Africans, you know, without them, you you know, they couldn't have bought the slaves. So I, I guess I'd like to ask you that question. Is there any validity in you know africans actively and you know 
honestly, in terms of knowingly being partakers in this thing, or was it a case of being coerced or, you know, when someone in authority wants to do something with you, you want to do it because it's either you do it or you get in trouble or you're doing it because you don't want to get in trouble. So can you shed more light on that when people say, oh, but Africans were doing it. So it's actually the Africans. It's not just about the British or the West. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I think it's both. Okay. It's, it's really too simplistic to just take to take one side. So the mm-hmm. reason, one of the reasons why I pointed out that James Hutton Bruce's grandfather, grandfather was a huge slave trader, and the grandfather okay. of that is sort of to complicate because I don't um, to but that's the that's the actual history number one. Yeah. Number two, to also complicate to to prevent a simple reading of him as just a very good man who is good all the time, because yeah. if you, there's no such thing. So yeah. both in Africa and I think in in Europe too, you find um, um, there were Africans that actually took part, most that took part not because they were coerced, but because it was a, a very lucrative business. Mm-hmm. And there were also Africans that had to take part in order to sort of survive. Yeah. By that I mean, because the slave trade created a slave economy. And if you are not part, if you are a local chief or king and you're not part of that economy, then you run the risk of having yourself and your subjects, um, you know, basically shipped away as slaves. You have hmm. to put guns yeah. and also, yeah, you sort of have to fight for that. Yeah. So there's boats. Um, the, the picture is, is non-simplistic either way. So whether you're studying the European from the European angle, I mean, people like um, Eric Williams argued that abolition is not, um, and it's not purely humanitarian. So there was a sort of economic logic to it. There's some of that is true, but the, some of, some of um, the other part of the argument, which is some of it was also humanitarian. So from the African side, I think you know, it's, it's not um, it's not a simple. It's not just. It's not. It's not. A, it's not simple. So there is argument from both sides. Very valid argument. And I think one of the reasons why studying African abolition abolitionism is would is also interesting is because the um, literature on on abolition of slavery is also very one sided. So the literature on slavery itself, whether you're studying transatlantic slavery, um, it is not one-sided. The Europeans will tell you that Africans also participated, partook, and they are right, Africans partook. However, when you're studying, when you study the literature on abolition, which is um, the good part that's bringing slavery to an end, there's almost very, very little on the role played by Africans. So part of our research is just to sort of um, point out and shine some light on Africans that also sort of took part in this. And also to complicate the simple question, the simple thesis that abolition, especially sort of British abolition, which is which is my own research area, 
it's all humanitarian in most cases yeah. they were not even yeah they were not even concerned with um they were not they didn't even bother themselves with actually implementing the law the law was just created as a way of um as a sort of um it's almost a sort of PR to as a way of just getting anti-slavery activists in Europe of their back. Of their back. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like it's not just as simplistic as presenting certain group as benevolent actors, like, oh, we're putting yeah. an end to it because this person came in the picture, but I guess maybe it's no longer economically viable or politically correct to do it. Because then perhaps that helps us understand the disparity. In, in that there was a willingness to stop the transatlantic slavery, which is obviously something that is known, but domestically you were not willing to do that because you saw the need for the slave trade to continue domestically at the domestic level. Yes, that's that's correct. As a matter of as a matter of fact, the um there was another case um in um late 1980s and 18 so 1880s and early 1890s of um an african um called um um i think sorry um francis ferron so okay. he was writing accusing the british governor then in the good coast of promoting domestic slavery the reason for this, the British government, governor was actually promoting domestic slavery and he couldn't complain to the governor. So he had to write to anti-slavery organizations in UK, in, in the United Kingdom, in secret, to complain that you know, the British governor in, in um, Good Coast was then promoting slavery, not implementing the law that was passed in 1874. Yeah. Um, it was a very interesting case. So yeah, you have an African complaining that the British are actually promoting domestic slavery. And if you read his letters, very long letters, he he delved into actual cases of the British governor then promoting domestic slavery. The British governor was doing it for administrative convenience. Um, but you have Africans like him that were almost disgusted by the British for promoting, for what they consider to be promoting domestic slavery. Mm -hmm. So that's just that the, yeah, the picture, the picture is not, um, is not good and bad. Yeah. It, okay. Well, thank you so much for clarifying. Cause I've always, obviously I'm not, I'm not a historian from this perspective, but because of the history or the knowledge I have of, of, of colonialism and, and, and wars and conflicts and the links with colonialism, personally, anytime I hear about slavery and that argument about, oh, but the Africans sold, the first thing that comes to mind, to me at least, is you know this power relation, wherein someone is doing it because they're subjugated or they're scared. And so it's really, really gratifying to hear from you, you know, someone that is an expert, sort of the narrative around who was doing this and why they had to be doing this as well. I have another question and, and hopefully we can soon round off. And this relates to all the so many stories of the abolitionists that you, you're researching and you must have heard about. Are there yeah. women? Are there women? If, if there are, are you able to shine a light on one at least? Um yes, yes, there 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 are 
women actually um a couple um as a matter of fact in um i think in late 18 um in sorry in 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 um i think it was 1834 or 1844 i'm not sure when the british abolished domestic when they abolished slavery in british colonies then africans uh, um African African settlements were not considered colonies. So like British colonies then, I mean, places like Jamaica, Bab, uh, sort of West Indies. Mm-hmm. When they did that, some merchants in Gold Coast wrote to the to the then stationed, stationed governor asking, look, this law, does it affect us? How does it affect us? Um, so they were they were scared that slaves, their own slaves, would be taken away from them. So they wrote to the governor saying, "How does it affect us?" And I think the governor then told them that it doesn't affect them. But however, a few years down the line, I think two three years down the line, a party, a new governor came on board. This new governor was um, an abolitionist back in London. Yeah. So he then votes to them. He then he then he then um, wrote a very short proclamation, saying that slavery has been outlawed. Just writing, he then wrote a, yeah a short proclamation that was pasted everywhere, saying that slavery has, has been outlawed. So this merchant, this local merchant I'm talking about, too, wrote to the governor and told the governor that they are not um, going to they are not. Um, going to abide to the law that they, because the British don't have even the the ability to implement the law then. I'm talking about 18, I, so I can send some of these letters to you. So there are some yeah. women, six women wrote to the governor, however, told telling the governor that yes, it's a very good law and they are very much willing to give give up slavery. So these are six women so so these women in the so way, these were British women no the local women ah these ah. women in a way these women in a way um I'm, I'm I'm not sure we can call them abolitionists ah, okay. but they yeah but we can say that they um perhaps we can call them abolitionists but they were sort of willing to give up slavery as I'm talking about as early as 1840s by um I've tried to pursue. Okay, I have the names of these six women. I think I've tried to pursue, um, pursue them, so to speak, to see if I can I can get more information about them. I've not been able to get to get much, okay. but these are six six women, and they wrote. They, yeah, so they were sort of willing. They said it's a very good policy, and they are willing to abide. And but then they then advised the governor. Um, to compensate slave owners. They were advising the governor that for this policy to work, you have to sort of compensate slave owners, uh, which is what the British used to do then anyway. When they abolished, they would sort of pay to slave owners because slave is a form of property. Yeah. Okay, so I guess then if you're saying that these women noted they were willing to give up slavery, does it mean they owned slaves then? Because you can't give up what you don't have. Yeah, I, I think it has to mean, 
either that they own slaves or that um they they um I'm not sure they were sort of speaking for themselves. Maybe okay. they were sort of speaking for the community. Ah, okay. But uh, yeah, the reason why this is interesting is that in Fanti, so this is Fanti region. Fanti is a matrilineal Ah. Yeah, so women tend to be very sort of assertive in the Fanti region. Um, so it is normal for them to write to the to the governor to express their own opinion. Even when the governor, when in 1874, talking about a couple of decades down the line, when the British finally abolished domestic slavery, some women also wrote to the to the Queen actually, to Queen of England. Yeah. Um, wrote to the queen through, through the colonial governor. But what they were saying then was that they want to, they were sort of um, advising the British to also pay out compensation. And then they criticized the governor for the way that the governor um, sort of, um, for the way for the way that the governor passed the law, that he did the law without consulting consulting anybody domestically, which is the same argument that James Hutton Brew was making. Um, but in terms of women, I think now that you asked ask um, the question, there's there's really a lot on this. So after the after the even though the British the British did not want to implement the law, so many women came out after the law, after after passage of the law. Some of them are slaves, some of them are even wives that were not happy. So I'm using the wife, the word wife now yeah quotes because the the boundary between slaves um between slaves and wives is not really clear so some yeah. of them you try to use the law to get out of their husband's or their master's house uh-huh. as a matter of fact there's some research on this most of the cases that came to court after abolition of slavery were women coming to court especially from the fancy region to say to use the law to sort of renegotiate their relationship with their husband or to leave their husband, no, not husband. Their, yes, some wives use the law to renegotiate relationship with husbands. Others use the law to take their master or former masters to court. Others yeah. sort of, yeah, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that has been done on this from sort of the women angle. Okay. Um, I hate I I'm very sorry to say you know obviously a a feminist would um do a better job of no, interpreting yeah interpreting I don't think so. no I don't think so you've done a great job of um I don't think it has anything to do with feminism it's just I guess at the time right and it yeah. happens that the stories that were told is is m- m- mostly that of men, and it's actually yeah. great to see that there are women that is actually documented because if it's not written, nobody's going to be able to tell tell anyone about it. So you have done a yeah. great job of trying to explain it, um, explain it, and uh, hopefully I can I will get to read more about it. I mean, if you have anything to share. Um, we're running out of time. I have enjoyed learning so much from you. And, and so I wanted to hear, I guess this is the last question I can ask and then we can say our goodbyes, is why is this research that you're, um, the project that you guys are undertaking presently, why is it important? And when can we, where can we read further if we're interested in reading about your findings? Okay. Um, 
I mean, there's so much packed into the first question. Why is it important? Okay. Um, so it is important for so many reasons. So it's not just a historical research. Is it's um, so we 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 obviously start from the mid 19th century to even the modern um, eras. For example, I have a pending a pending publication with I think Bolton um, with Bolton. I just forgot the name of the journal on on. Um, anti-slavery networks in Ghana currently. So there's a lot of of um, child labor, not even child labor, child slavery in Ghana. So in the fishery industry, the cocoa industry, yeah. even the mining industry. Yeah. Um, so there is also a great deal of activities, um, sort of anti-slavery activities in Ghana, but these activities are almost done in silos. So the a campaign accompanying against slavery in the fishery industry just does that. Mm -hmm. The one campaign against, um, say, child sex trafficking does just that. The one that's the one campaign accompanying against there's something called Trukosi um, in Ghana does that. There's something called Kayaye girls in Ghana, where girls from the mm -hmm. north, from poor, poor, from very poor region, they, when they come to Accra and Kumasi, they are highly susceptible to trafficking the one people focusing on that um activist sorry focusing on that they do, do just that so because of the because they operate in silos they are not very effective so one of the arguments i am making in one of my new piece is that if these different campaigners can come together and form a national platform they can they obviously will be more um, effective to compel the government to make create not just create new laws because they already have the laws to implement the laws. So there is there is the academic side of our research and there is also the very practical side. So the historic side is just to con to correct the very one sided and I think Eurocentric account of abolition of slavery that we are that is currently accessible. That's the sort of historic historical side, but the modern side deals with practical cases of slavery and anti-slavery. Um, so, so um, in specific cases, for I'll give an example. In Nigeria, there's something called um, Osu and Ohu in the yeah. Igbo, Igbo part of, yes. of Nigeria. It's still affecting millions, thousands of people today. Yeah. So there's a we we just by doing the research, I've been able to understand the historical side of of it. Yeah. So drawing the link between the historical and the modern side perhaps can help some of the anti anti osu traffickers, sorry, uh, um, activists, so to speak, to better understand, um, to to better understand history so they can properly use it and, um. One also is basically was created, I want to say created out of thin air. Um, but today in the Igbo region, some place in the Igbo region is considered cast casting stone. Considered, but yeah, so I think it's, it's uh, for the at least for the Osuka system uh, as an Igbo yeah. and my community actually oh, they have Igbo. people. Yes, yeah. I am. Um, but we have people in my community that are considered as that. Is yeah. it's unfortunately a cultural thing that people are sort of scared of, you know, associating with. 
So it's not, you know, you don't want to be associated with someone that is not, you know, this free born and this person that is not a free born. And, and that is the problem. And I hope that we might have time, another opportunity to speak to you at length, because this is also another topic I'm very much interested in. But I'm aware yeah. of the time. And I want to say thank you so much for being here. And I wonder if you can say um, you know your goodbye to our, um, our listeners. And then I'll come back, hopefully, um, have you again, invite you so you can talk to us about the Osuka system, because it's a very fascinating topic. Um, thank you very much. I, I had no idea that I think I probably should have known from your name that you are um Igbo. Yes. If I knew, I probably wouldn't have um given the example of Osu. No, 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 it's fine, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, because there's so much, there's so much, there's so much um on that. So um so I think I have just a few seconds left. Yes. <laughs> thank you very, very much for having me. Um there's not enough, there's really not um, enough time to really no. delve into, into some of these issues, but um, it's been it's been fun. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have you back again. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and take care. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye.